All right, you curious here and curious or hurly burlyites. We'll get right to it today because we have both a guest and a conversation I've been jonesing for. And damn it, I cannot, I will not jones even one minute longer. After a three-year interregnum, my friend, former colleague, and noted Canadian economist, Don Drummond, joins us for a second time on the Hurley Burley. The Right Honourable Paul Martin called Don one of the most principled and imaginative public servants with whom I have ever worked. Mr. Drummond spent almost 23 years in senior positions in the Federal Department of Finance, culminating in Associate Deputy Minister, and I can just add that he was fundamental to the balancing of the budget exercise in the mid-1990s. Subsequent to his time in government, he was chief economist for the TD Bank. He's still a busy, in-demand thinker, writer, and commentator, adjunct professor at the School of Public Studies, School of Policy Studies at Queen's University, chair at the Canadian Centre for the Study of Living Standards, fellow in residence at the C.D. Howe Institute, and member of the expert advisory group for the Canadian Institute for Climate Choices. Today... We're going to take, we're going to tackle a single subject matter, one that Don has plenty of experience with, because he did this in Ottawa federally in the 90s, and then he did a very detailed report for the Ontario government in the 2000s about how they might accomplish the same thing, rationalize government spending. So a ton of experience with and offers a ton of insight on federal spending and the kind of actions it would take to get back to balance. So. How what would be required to get to a balanced budget in this country? That's the subject of our pod today. And Don, nobody I would rather have this conversation with than you. So I really want to thank you for making the time to be available today. Yeah, so glad to be here. <laughs> um, you're you're down in Florida. It's cold in no, Toronto today. Arizona, Arizona. Sorry, that's right. You're right. in Arizona. Yeah. Right. Why do you choose Arizona over Florida? I I love the the nature here uh, within a half an hour walk or a 15 minute bike ride or a very short car ride we can be in the natural conservation areas that are about a hundred thousand hectares and other than the occasional plane going over you, you, there's nothing uh, just nature cactuses uh, in the season there might be a creek running but uh, it's just absolutely gorgeous here it, 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 it is the worst example of urban planning it's urban sprawl beyond anything you could imagine there's just highways everywhere there's there's no density there's no high rises as we were talking about the shore it's a huge consumption of water but if you manage to turn your eye towards that it is actually beautiful and the location we're in is stunning i back onto a mountain in a conservation area i've got the blinds closed right now because of the glare of the sun you refer to but if i open those blinds i look out on a mountain and there's bobcats and coyotes and everything's back there beautiful that's amazing. I imagine you're playing some golf, too. I'm going to remind my listeners that Don Drummond once was challenged to a match of golf by Paul Martin, who took his golf game seriously. Paul and I showed up for the match. Don showed up still dressed in his dress clothes, still had a button, a shirt with buttons down the front, no golf pants on, was wearing runners. I think he had his grandfather's wooden sticks and shot a scratch game of golf. So I imagine that you're still playing a little bit of golf down there. Well, there was still one particular moment that I relished from that. Uh, Martin liked to play a game called Chairman of the Board where you hit your drives and then you can bet on yourself or you can bet on somebody else. And we had played nine holes and I'd done nothing but bet on myself. I was making quite a bit of money betting on myself. I wasn't tended to bet on you or him. 
And <laughs> the 10th hole, there was a coincidence of my worst drive and Paul Martin's best drive. And he had this great big smile on his face. He said, finally, finally, you're going to make me chairman of the board and you're going to bet on me. And I said, no way. <laughs> I, I I think I could still par the hole, and I'm going to bet a lot of money you're not going to par the hole. And I, and of course I did par the hole, and he double bogeyed the hole. So he was he was very upset after that. And yes, I, I, I enjoyed I enjoyed that. He may have raised that last weekend when we were talking about you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's get to this subject matter. Okay, so there's a debate about fiscal policy in this country, uh, and. Um, normally there is in Canadian history debates about fiscal policy. We went about 20 years from 95 to 2015 where there wasn't much a debate about what fiscal policy ought to be like. Um, <clears throat> but it's back. And the government has abandoned balanced budgets as a target and has chosen other what they describe as fiscal guardrails. You are one of the authors of a draft proposed budget uh, for the federal government that has been put out by the C.D. Howe Institute. And it proposes to balance the budget by 27-28. Uh, so let's start with this, Don. Why is it important to balance the budget? Because when we worked together in the 90s, I don't recall you being dogmatic on this matter. Well, I got to introduce just an element of wonkiness before I get there to say why deficits and debt matter. We can't escape the principle when you're running deficits and debt, somebody has to pay them sometime in some way. It, it never comes free. So we're just debating about who's going to pay it and way it pay it. At the moment, it would be the young people and the next generations are paying it. And that's not by itself a terrible thing because we are passing some public assets. We got the St. Lawrence Seaway, we got airports and, and, the, and the like, we've got an infrastructure of the government. But we are asking them to pay much more in the debt than we're giving them. And we have to look at it in the context of the young generation. They're having a rough time. Uh, their biggest problem, of course, is lack of access to affordable housing. Uh, in the major cities, you can't get a house for under a, a million dollars. Uh, good luck if you, even if you've got a nice university degree and you're graduating a $60,000 job, you can't do that. They, unlike my generation, have got thousands and thousands of dollars of student debt. And then the big one, I think the young people and the next generation are going to have to dedicate all their resources mainly to adapting to climate change. I would like to say to mitigate climate change, but I think it's too late to make a huge dent in that. So that's going to be the reality of their life. They need to, and we need to save the resources for that. But we're handing them off this environmental challenge and saying, by the way, we're also going to pass you a 40% debt-GDP ratio, which has almost no benefits to you. So that's why it matters. So if we go back from an economic, just the simplest possible terms, if your economy is operating at full employment, at potential output, however you want to call it, you shouldn't be stimulating the economy. You should be running a balanced budget. That's what Keynesian was all about decades and decades ago. It's a very simple concept. If we look at the Bank of Canada, finally, and I emphasize finally, in their last economic outlook, they said aggregate demand and economy is roughly balanced with aggregate supply. We have been running with a hot economy for several years. That's why we have this inflation problem. It's not just because of food and energy you know, you, prices. You know, you, you would never convince anybody in any bar or restaurant in Canada that that is true. Well, most people think we're in a recession. But let's took it in terms that people will understand. Yes, the media has emphasized the unemployment rate has been going up, but it's still under 
That's the lowest it's been. We've had this labor growth is tiny. Growth is tiny. I'm only pushing you on this because I'm curious about why you aren't arguing for a counter cyclical fiscal approach given the slow growth in the economy. Uh, This argument might be a little bit difficult to pass in the bar, and I might want to wait till well into the evening before introducing it because it involves the difference between levels and growth rates. Yes, the growth rate has been somewhat weak, but the level of activity is high, and that's because the economy was overheated for several years. All of us made a mistake. All of us thought the pandemic was going to have a more negative, lasting effect on the economy. The economy proved to be more resilient, and we had to deal with the overhang of what I think was a colossal error on the part of the monetary authorities of having near-zero interest rates for two decades. That all accumulated to a big problem, and the economy is hot. And again, if you look at the Bank of Canada's measure of the balance between aggregate demand and supply, they said for years, aggregate demand exceeded aggregate supply. And that showed up in a very low unemployment rate. Look at it in job vacancies. The job vacancy, there's a one billion job vacancies. One third of them had been vacant for more than three months. So the economy was a high activity, albeit it is slowing down, but it's not in slack. And so you don't want the fiscal authority adding fiscal injection, but that's exactly what they were doing. And if you look at the fall economic statement, they have deficits running 18 billion way out to 2029. That's adding fuel to the fire of the economy and is passing on more debt. Now, you referred to the 1990s, the debt GDP ratio then was 70%. It's 40% here. I won't claim we're in the same near crisis situation, but 40% is very high. And if you think about it, it was just a little bit over 30% debt should be ratio when the pandemic hit. And we should be very thankful it was down at that manageable level because it gave the government the flexibility to respond. We got 14 cents on the dollar going, you know, every dollar you spend in the Canada Revenue Agency, 14 cents of your dollar goes to pay interest on the public debt. That doesn't buy you health care. It doesn't buy you housing. It doesn't buy you defense. It buys you things that we've already consumed in the past. You'll remember back in the big bad days of the 1990s when the parliamentarians took their break. They always said the same thing when they came back. They said, my constituents claim that they're not getting their money's worth of taxes. And we said, well, they're not. <laughs> they're they're <Yeah>. right. <laughs> they're, yeah. you know, they're, get, they're getting 70 cents back on their dollar. Of course, uh, you give a dollar and you get 70 cents of it back to healthcare. We don't want that the situation to get bad like that. It's getting bad right now. We should be returned. I'm not saying next year. I don't want to ruin the economy. I think on a gradual fashion, but there's no excuse for running deficits. There's no excuse for running spending up as high as it is. And it's, well, that's another subject. But I think a lot of the spending is not even valuable. Never mind just adding the deficits of debt. Well, I want to get into that, but before we do, just a comparison. I mean, when I ask economists, and you're one, but I've asked other economists, why is the U.S. economy? So growing so much faster than the Canadian economy, they tell me a big part of the answer is U.S. government spending. Yeah, um, and, and when's their day of reconciliation come for that? Um, they're passing on even bigger debt to their young people. They don't have as severe a housing affordability. Their demand and supply in the housing market is much more balanced. They're not bringing in 1 million people per year in a $40 million population. Their proportion, even with illegal immigration, is not nearly as strong as the demand of this. But, yeah, but a price is building up for theirs, That they, and they're willing to accept that. I, guess. I, I don't even think they think about it very much. Right, right. 
So is all government spending the same? I mean, one of the things I've kind of wondered over the years as I've heard people talk about this is why we don't have separate accounting for what might legitimately be called investments in future growth and innovation and consumption. Um, and because presumably as much as you want to spend on innovation is all going to be good. And on, not on innovation, but on growth enabling things investment, if it's true investment, is all going to yield results down the way. And it would be consumption that you'd want to keep more in line with your current revenues, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. If we make the division of government spending between consumption and investment, there's very little government investment going on. Almost all of it's consumption. If you step back and just think about the needs of the Canadian population, obviously healthcare is number one. You would think that that would be the thing the governments want to take care of. We have 6 billion Canadians, adults, who don't have regular access to primary caregiver. Right. And, you know, you know her better than everybody else. We singularly compare ourselves to Americans. We're dreadfully fearful of their system. But look, come on, ours is not working very well. We got big problems, and yet we're spending tons of money on, on other things. We've got this colossal problem of affordable housing. We're not addressing that. We need millions of housing. We build about 225,000. So there's another gaping hole. How many thousands of times have you heard in the last 60 years that we're going to do our 2% of GDP defense spending commitment? We'd never come close. So the, the, you know, that's the most rudimentary requirement of a government. So we have this paradox. We have this mountainous spending over 15% of gross domestic product, but we're not meeting the very basic needs of Canadians. And that just says we're spending things on the wrong thing. So <laughs> I, I'm sure you're going to go there and I'll cheat a little bit, but you know, as an example, we waste money by exempting home heating fuel from the carbon tax in Atlantic Canada. I marked on my calendar, this is the day the carbon tax died. Why would you do that in that fiscal circumstances, why would you pick one segment of the population, one particular activity? I was actually kind of happy when Scott Moore Saskatchewan said, well, in that case, you've got to take out natural gas, which would be a terrible thing to do too. But that just shows, you know, why in the height of the pandemic did we increase the payment of old age security to people 75 plus? That is a cohort in Canada that has the lowest poverty rate. Single mothers with children, why wouldn't you do something for them working age adults who are working in poverty. Why wouldn't you do something for where the needs are the greatest relative to instead of that? Well, the government would argue they did that with the child benefit, wouldn't they? And I would be the first to acknowledge tremendous progress that's been made and the poverty mark of children and the poverty mark of single mothers with children has come down, but it's still quite high and it's still a lot higher than it is for seniors. I'm not saying that poverty doesn't exist in seniors, but the combination of old age security and guaranteeing income is not li living rich by any means, but it does take both seniors out of poverty, and they don't typically face this housing problem that younger people face. So let me put just, just let me zag for a, a second and just say to you. So I do research on food insecurity, and um, one of the things I see in my research on food insecurity is that there's a pretty consistent level of it across all age groups until you get to age 65, where it almost disappears. Uh, there's very, very few seniors that are food insecure in Canada because of they have a guaranteed income at the age of 65. Right. Well, that's the yeah. irony. We've, we've had this 
burning debate about having a basic income. And I always That's what up, I'm going to ask you. Does I, well, it, is, is that an idea that makes sense? And, well, I said, I always stick out my hand. I said, excuse me, we already have two basic incomes. The child benefit is a basic income for families with children, and OAS and GIS are a basic income. So we don't have a basic income for working age adults without children. That's it. But like we got two. But it appears to work for the people we do it for. Yeah, that's right. And and we sort of the Canada benefit at a very low level where you get augmentation of very low pay. It is kind of a form of basic income, albeit the structure is there, albeit it's a But uh, you know that's a bit of a diversion. But my point was that there are burning needs, but we have this paradox where we're spending all this money, we're running deficits, and yet we're not meeting some of the basic needs. We're not meeting the primary care, and we're not needing the access to food, and we're definitely not meeting the affordable housing challenge. Bread, yogurt, fruit and veg, clothing, consumer electronics. Prices for these items and almost everything else you use, wear, and eat have gone up and up and up these last few years. Inflationary times we live in. Yeah, I know. Duh. Anyway, however, there is a notable exception I've been talking about here. StatsCan Consumer Price Index shows us the wireless industry has been drastically cutting their prices over the last five years, as much as over 50% in the case of cellular. Yet, as the innovation economy marches forward, paired with these inflationary times, it means national carriers like our presenting sponsor TELUS are absorbing far higher costs to build infrastructure and innovate their technologies, even as they cut prices for services. And so we have what's known as diseconomies of scale and scope. Labor, equipment, materials, energy, all industry input costs have increased substantially, when averaged almost 3% during the past year, 9% since 2020. Breaking it down, key building materials like concrete and structural steel, up 55% and 53% since the first quarter of 2020. Electricity prices rose 8.2% year over year, as reported by StatsCan last November. And total labor costs increased by 17.3% from 2020 to 2023. Against this backdrop of higher input costs and much lower retail prices, you might think something has to give, eh? What's that old saw? Quality, price, and service. Pick two. Nope. The quality of Canada's networks is world-leading. Full stop. Virtually all of us have access to wireless, including more than 97% of rural Canadians. And over 85% have access to 5G, with speeds of up to 250 megabits per second on standard plans and 2 gigabits per second on 5G+. That far surpasses our neighbours to the south. We didn't get there by chance, hurly-burlyites. Carriers like TELUS invested in these outcomes, creating massive economic benefit for the country. We'll talk more about that next week. Okay, so let's go right to your recommendations then uh, in the C.D. Howe Institute uh, budget. What you, you project a balanced budget by 27-28, is that correct? Yes, that's our, that's, right. our, that's our goal, and we basically work everything back. What does it take to get there? Correct. What do you anticipate that the actual deficit, absent any actions, will be in 27-28? Well, I'll just go with the government statement. Their fall economic statement had the deficit being $18 billion, And that includes an assumption that the cost-cutting exercise being led by the President of the Treasury Board will be successful. And we don't even know that. 
Uh, I don't hear any talk, any rumors or anything about another cost-cutting internet. In fact, I just hear more. I mean, the rumor is this minor farmer, farmer cares another billion dollars. So I, I don't anticipate the budget will do any better than 18. They will say, oh, these famous guardrails. Uh, you know, these are the guardrails that, that you wouldn't want to be driving on a mountain highway with them because if you hit them, you'd actually go over the cliff. They wouldn't mm. actually propel you back onto the road. They'll say the debt to P ratio will be coming down. And I said, levels matter. It's coming down at a glacial pace. It stays very high. And their long-term assumptions will come down are bogus. It's more likely it's going to go up. So, yeah, I, I'm troubled by what's in the fall economic statement. And I anticipate that I will not be pleased with what I see in the budget. If anything, it might even make the situation worse. And somebody else at some point will have to come in and clean that up. And they'll be pain. Yeah, let's let's not forget. As much as people kind of look back and give credit for 1995, it inflicted a lot of pain. We can't deny that. You don't you don't want to do that again. Talking about long term projections, isn't it the case, Don, that pretty much every budget that was presented to Parliament in the 70s, 80s, and uh, early 90s projected a balanced budget at some point? Yeah, and every one of them was wrong. Um, we had the depending on how wonky you want to be and how you slice and dice it, we had what turned out to be a permanent reduction in Canada's productivity rate, somewhere between 73 and 78. And it took governments roughly 20 years to acknowledge and accept that. Everybody just kept thinking it was going to be temporary, and everybody factored into their forecast, it's going to come back and revenues are going to boom, and it didn't. And then you do it, you know. I, and then you get this manipulation. I will remember one of the economic statements I worked with under the Conservative government where our internal forecast was a forecast of $43 billion, and by the time it got published, it said 29 They just kept coming back. Well, raise that revenue, lower that spending. It just became such a piece of fiction. And so finally, we, we got by the mid-90s. In fact, we went the other way. I, 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 always, I still get a kick of this. Because quite often people will give me credit for doing the great forecast in 1995. And they said, you know, I've looked back on all the federal and provincial budget forecasts since 1867. And the budget forecast of the federal government in 1995 was the least accurate fiscal forecast in any budget in Canadian history of any jurisdiction. And they look at this and I said, but it had a key feature. The errors were in the right direction. That's what right. it was all about. So if you've gone, you know. We'll bring it back to the golf analogy. If you've sliced the ball for 20 years, hitting a hook's not necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> and, and, if, and if you go back to Harvey Pennick and his famous little red book, he says, I love it when a slicer presents themselves. I have an hour to fix it. And I spend 55 minutes getting them to hook the ball. And the fast five minutes, I, I fix their hook. That's what you do in budgets. You spend 20 years being optimistic and then the one time well you you'll re, you'll remember this martin said i'm putting a gun to your head and you have to give me a number of the deficit that will never be exceeded and i said you know normal circumstances i think that's kind of an empty threat but coming from you i kind of think there's some, credi- <laughs> I, I think there's some credibility so I, i'm gonna go with a pretty high number and i just as a, just to keep the golf analogy uh in the finance golf tournament uh, Munir Sheikh, uh, who is Assistant Deputy Minister of Tax Policy, he's never played golf before. On the last hole of par five... And a highly put, principled leader of Stats Canada. I put uh, my second shot 
we were playing alternate shots. I put my second shot on the par five, about 50 feet away from the hole, had about a 10 foot wicked break. I put my foot 10 feet away from the hole. And I said to Martin, I'm dialing in my inner Pearl Martin here. I am going to, I got a gun to your head and I'm going to fire it unless you sink this putt. And he, <laughs> he sunk it. <laughs> <laughs> you made him hit it far enough. You made him hit it far enough. So, okay. So to get to, to shave off $18 billion in three years, what are the major fiscal measures that do that? Well, sir, we have a couple of other pieces in our agenda, and I'm willing to put them aside for the moment. We want to lower marginal income tax rates. We have very high marginal income tax rates. And, and you know, when Warren Buffett says that his secretary has a higher tax rate than him, he doesn't mean in total. He means her tax rate on her last dollar of income. And so for higher income people in Canada, you earn another dollar, you pay over 50% of the taxes. But if you're a lower to middle income person, particularly if you have the GIS or you have the child benefit, you can pay 70 cents of your last dollar. So we wanted to lower that. We want to lower the corporate income tax rate. Uh, beginning with the 2000 budget, we made the Canadian corporate tax system competitive around the world. But unfortunately, other countries, particularly United States, responded. So we want to lower that. So we use part of the spending reductions to lower those tax rates. But if you put that aside and keep it really simple, the fall economic statement has a deficit of $18 billion. You need to cut $18 billion out of spending. And that's over 3% out of spending. But this is, this is where we come to the glass half full, glass empty. One of the reactions we got to our shadow budget is it seems unrealistic you're taking how much money. And I said, you've been duped into the government's game. They put out forecast after forecast of really high spending, and every forecast has higher spending than another, and then they pretend to cut from this fictitious high level. Even after the spending cuts we have in, in our shadow budget, spending will be growing 5% since before the pandemic and over 5% back to when the government took place in 2015. How is that not adequate to meet the needs? It only seems like austerity relative to these fictional pro projections. So to understand this in the only way you taught me to understand it in the 90s, are these cuts from projected levels that you are proposing or are these yes. absolute cuts in current spending levels? No, no. I'm, so the level of spending, the level of spending has only declined twice in Canadian history after the Second World War. And we know that was a demilitarization that had a footnote beside it. And it declined in 1995 through 1997. These, as was Michael Wilson and Brian Mulroney's, all their alleged cuts were just slowing the growth rate. And that's all we're talking about. Even after our spending cuts, even after you balance the budget, there's still a lot of spending out there. But you'd have to prioritize. You, you can't do everything. And you'd have to say something like PharmaCare. Either you don't do it or you have to find a billion dollars of revenue to fund it. You can't just keep adding new spending on top of old spending. Okay. But make it, make it real. Now, you know the spending profile pretty well. And you know that people in politics come along and they say, we're going to balance the budget and it doesn't have to involve any pain. We're going to balance the budget through efficiencies. We're going to balance the budget through cutting consultants and various things. None of that's real money, right? So where are the spending pockets where this $18 billion would have to get shaved off of? Well, the first I would start was the operating budgets and the personnel budget of the government. So here's the other paradox. The number of civil services increased about a third since 2015. Have How you is tried? That? 
Like that's well, huge. Well, How well, is what, that? Well, what are they doing? That begs the question. All yeah. I see is I can't get anybody in the government to answer my phone. <laughs> uh, right. We can't process passports in a timely fashion. Um, we're not meeting any of the basic needs, uh, even even seemingly as well as we did in the past. So I I I frankly don't know. I I would really ha- I would really like to go into everybody's office for a day and just see what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so to back to it. Where loss of efficiency. So you want to start with personnel, and you want to reduce the number. I would, you know. There, there were so many brilliant aspects of what Paul Martin brought to this one, but I, I thought his biggest one, and this was when he suggested we do something that was different than been done before. All of the so-called cost-cutting exercises before the Trudeau senior years, the Mulroney years, is we, the central agencies, the Privy Council Office, the Prime Minister's Office, the Treasury Board, and Finance, in, in our assumed great wisdom, not only decided how much each department was to cut, but we told them how to cut. Right. And of course, they got their backs up against that. That that was overreach on our part. And he said, why don't we try it the other way around? That we will tell them what their target is, but we'll give them an opportunity to figure it out. I didn't think it would work. And I had one of the most incredible weeks of my life where David Zuzman, he came in to help us with this of the University of Ottawa and we met all the head of Mr. Kretschner's transition team, right? Yeah, we we met all the senior finance people of all the departments and we said you gotta do two things. You gotta cut fifteen percent out of your budget, but you have to tell us how you want to do it. And they were incredulous. They said, you mean you're not going to tell us how to do it? And we said, no, not in the first case. And they said, you mean we can actually propose to cut the things we think aren't working and we can actually propose to preserve what we think? And we said, yes. And so we get into the process. And of course, somebody's always going to try to game the system, right? So one department, I'll name them if you want me. I won't name them if you don't want me to, came back and said, we can't cut anything. And so uh, Jocelyn Bourgon, then, who was chairing the deputy minister's process, uh, played the bluff and said, that's fine. Uh, we'll meet again next Tuesday at four o'clock and either you'll come back with a revised answer or we'll then tell you how to cut. You're, you're given an opportunity to do it. So I think that worked brilliantly. Uh, in a way, it almost kind of duped all these people because it, it empowered them. And, you know, and who are we at finance and treasury board who don't really know the ins and outs of their programs to tell them that you have to cut this program and that program. And, and, you know, maybe we were cutting something that was really valuable and working very well. Maybe we were preserving something that wasn't let, let them sort that out. So we in the shadow budget, we basically just say your budget, your budget for personnel is frozen. I don't, you know, exactly. You know, the Ontario government, the three-year legislative wage, once again, how many times do we need to have this? These freezes, hiring freezes, they never work. They always come back and bite you. You always end up where you were. We don't, I don't want to do that in the shadow budget. I don't want to do that in a real budget. You got this budget. You reward the people who are working well. You keep the people who are working well, and you deal with the programs and the people who aren't doing well, but give them some latitude to do that. And so we don't micromanage that in the shadow budget, and I don't think they should. And and that's a lesson, really, I've retained from the 1995 exercise. 
So the Scotties just wrapped up. Those of you who know, know. There is no more Canadian contest anywhere. Anyway, the curling at that event is about as good as curling gets. Like any sport, it has its own glossary of terms. House, hogline, button, pebble, brushing, etc. You can look it all up. And of course, curl. A stone's curl is the amount its trajectory bends while traveling down the ice. An expert curler can perform a move called a hit and roll. Bear with me here, curling fans. I'm getting to the point. In a hit and roll, the curler curls a stone down the ice, aiming at a stone on the other end of the rink that has another stone, a guard, in front of it. Properly executed, a hit and roll curls around the guard stone, knocks out the targeted stone, and then tucks itself in behind the guard. Like I said, it's an expert move. There are curlers who say, let's just worry about hitting something, period. Get the basics down before trying any fancy stuff, in other words. And yes, here's where I get to the point. Our sponsor, CN, decided to get back to getting the basics down a few years back. As I've said here more than once, the railway initiated a prime directive. Trains leave the station on time and arrive on time every time and safely. That's trickier than it sounds. Tracks have to be clear. Weather has to be coped with. Scheduling has to be precise. But it's working. CN trains are more punctual than they have been in years. Train velocity, the number of miles a train covers in an average day, is higher than it has been for years. Trains are spending less time in stations. CN customers are getting the cars they need when they need them. And their shipments are arriving on time. Come to think of it, that is actually sort of a hit and roll. The analogy might be a bit convoluted, but I like it. Okay, so you are agnostic about where the cuts come from. Uh, well, I would, I would like, to, I would like to have a good portion of them come from these operating budgets because I don't really know where all what all these people are doing and all the money. But all I see is it doesn't seem that we've had improved service levels. So I got to think there's a lot of inefficiency that can be rooted out there. So I would I would like to see the least harm to Canadians. I would like I don't want to see healthcare. I don't want to see the affordable housing initiatives hurt and, and things like that. Preserve the things that are really important. And you know, I. Like anybody else, I would just assume to spend nothing on defense. But come on, like we do have international commitments, and given what's happening in the world, we got to honor basic things like that. And we're not doing it. And and we have to give troops adequate condition and adequate protection. We can't have them operating dangerously on shoestring mm -hmm. budgets. We got to take care of the core. So okay, but as as you, you as you go through this, you end up with okay. So we can't cut defense spending any further. It's going to have to be at least where it is, maybe go up, and we'll get to that in a second. Healthcare, we've got to deal with the provinces. We can't cut that. Now you're starting to carve out massive amounts of government spending, which means that the cuts in the remaining areas have to be much higher. Yeah, right? and and I. So I'll bring in a second one. We want to see what is actually an effective spending review process. So departments are obligated to do reviews of their processes every couple of years, and they all say about the same thing. They say we have a budget of four hundred million, and we spent four hundred million. Therefore, because we spent four hundred million, we created jobs. So we say, like, wait a minute, <laughs> like. Your objective is not to spend money. 
your objective was to improve food security. Right. Did you improve food security? They never look at that. Right. That's the first of all. Even when a program was created, it didn't specify what do we mean by food security. How would we measure? Do we even measure it? Do we monitor whether we're secure, improving that or not? Let's get real and actually measure that. Uh, and then let's realize that if you, David Hurley, spend $400 million, you took that out of my pocket. All you did is take my $400 million and you spend it. You didn't create a single job. All you did is transfer money from one person's pocket to another. That doesn't count. And you created all kinds of distortions in the economy. You raise my taxes, which causes distortion. So I want to see these holistic evaluations of spending. And I'll tell you, a lot of them will fail. You know, just to pick one example, somebody finally did one of these on, on the foreign film tax credit. You know, it's wonderful to see Nicole Kidman and like walking around the streets of Toronto, but we've hugely subsidized that. And it shows that there's a social cost of doing that. We shouldn't do that. It doesn't raise money for Canada. It costs Canadians to do that. And is that where we want Canadians' money to do? But if we did this kind of proper evaluation, a lot of the things we spend any money on, and particularly a lot of the economic subsidies, will show there's actually a cost to that or not getting a benefit from them. Right. Okay. Now, one of the things you talk about in the budget is an increase of the GST by two percentage points. Yep. Uh, back to the level it was at. Uh, in 2006. Um, why is this a good idea? So here, here's a, a, a their wonkiness moment. So lots of people have done this. Beb Dalvey, John Lester in Canada, the OECD, Pharma Finance has even published papers on this. You can rank taxes by the damage that is done to the economy. By far the most damaging taxes are ones that are laid on capital because they cut investment. And you as a worker, if you don't have any capital to work with, you're not going to be very productive. The second most damaging ones are taxes on income. So let's say you, David Hurley, earn another dollar. You're going to lose over 50% of that to income taxes. What are you going to do about that? Well, you, you may not be inclined to try to earn that extra dollar. Like, Why bother, right? Uh, I, I know for myself and my position of life, if somebody wants me to do something, the first thing that occurs to me, I'm only going to get keep 40% of this. Yeah, you know, maybe I'm just play some more pickleball. Is it really worthwhile? And what? what well, about, why did people work? Why did people work hard in 1980 when the marginal rate was 80 percent? Well, they they didn't particularly work hard. We we had lower participation rates, and we've seen this continued evolution of a higher participation rate of women. And and yet, when you're losing a lot of the benefits for children, your marginal tax rate gets very high, and so. I would like to see the marginal tax rates for people being brought down. So that would be a premium. And of course, we put a lot of the proceeds of our expenditure cuts into that. So the least damaging tax is a consumption tax. And and this one, uh, I don't know if you remember this, but um, you and Elia Boom did some polling and came back with a finding that everybody hated the GST. And I asked you to pair the question. I said, pair, ask them if they would prefer to pay the GST or their personal income tax. And the answer was that they would prefer to pay the personal income tax. And once again, that shows that people are a lot more sophisticated than we think. And the reason is you went back into focus groups. And the reason is that they thought that they could avoid the GST 
because they just don't need to consume, right? That's a choice. It's a right. voluntary tax in that sense, but you can't avoid paying the personal income tax. And to show a sophisticated where there's actually triple tax, but they knew about the double taxation. And they thought, if out of my $60,000 salary, I actually managed to save $5,000 and I get $500 of interest on that, I actually pay tax on that. So on the personal income tax, I pay double. And so they, and this is why I think the GST has got mislabeled. But you know, by the way, the way that, the way that, played out politically because we promised a personal tax reduction and Harper promised a GST reduction is that people continued to the last day of that election campaign to tell me in polling that they would prefer a reduction in personal income tax rates yeah. to a reduction in the GST. Yeah. But they believed a reduction in the GST and they didn't believe a reduction in personal income taxes. Yeah. Well, mathematics isn't your friend on a personal income tax and that's the problem because, uh, I mean, there's about 20 million filers. <laughs> you give everybody a hundred bucks, there's two billion bucks right, right there. Right. So you, you really can't do anything substantial for less than about 510. And we're the first to acknowledge in this shadow budget, the action that we propose on the personal income tax is just the beginning. It, it's very minor. And, but, you know, I, I, I really think we need to cut through this, mythology how everybody hates the gst and stuff on balance people would prefer to pay the gst it is far less economically damaging then people will go as regressive but we do have the gst tax credit mis mislabeled because you, you get the credit relative to your income and it has nothing to do with how much gst but you can deal with those kind of effects so i i think that the cutting the gst was a huge waste of money if we'd had the money to do something in 2006 i would have far preferred to see it go to somewhere else and i would prefer to put that back into place and use that to try to bring down the personal and corporate income tax rates that would be economically enhancing right and if and if if a government wanted to balance the budget but didn't want to do that what would then be the implications well as i said it it, it doesn't change all that much from the spending. You you wouldn't have to cut the spending to have the money to go towards the personal income tax. But coming back to the fall economic statement, you still got to take these $18 billion out of this fictional level of spending. But spending would still be growing about 5% rel relative to what was in 2015. It's not like you, uh, we're saying the level of spending has to come down. But you wouldn't be able to do some of the things you've done and probably wouldn't be able to do new things. Or if you're going to do new things, you would have to find a source of funding for them. Where in this world does what you used to call <laughs> at the round the CMO table pressures, right? Which were things that you thought the government was eventually going to have to deal with that were going to have a fiscal cost to it. Um, where, where do these little traps lie in all this? I mean, I, I think of how difficult the budget process might be when the Human Rights Commission can tell you that you owe $40 billion. Yeah. Yeah, that's the toughest one. And I and I, 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 think one of the biggest ones has to be the defense commitment. Um, I mean, how, how long can we go along always saying, yeah, 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 we're going to go to the 2% of GDP. Uh, nobody believes it. <laughs> nobody in the international community needs it. And and maybe that was okay when NATO was just kind of sitting around and worrying about things. But when you've actually got crises in many different places to deal with, can we still do that? And Trump. 
and, and, we, and we got in the United States uh, saying not only do other partners have to pay up, but maybe they won't pay up. I, I, you know, and, and that's mega billion dollars. And, and as I said, you, you, you have to worry about the safety and security of the people who work in that field in Canada. We, we, we well know we got planes and things that don't fly very well. Uh, we have to deal with that. Right. Uh, so that assuming then that that has to go up, uh, that's that's twenty billion annually. So let's say we didn't get all the way to two percent. Let's say we went half the way to two percent. That's another ten billion annually. So that means you got to find eight twenty eight billion, right? Yep. Right. Yeah, and then then you get into a big question where a lot of spendings come right now. Uh, this is a kickback to the nineteen seventies of federal spending in provincial jurisdiction. So let's just pick an example. Absolutely, is critical in Canada. We're about to have a doubling of the 75th cohort. Our default is to put them in institutional care. That's the most expensive place, and nobody, no one has ever stuck their hand up and say, I want to go into institutional care. They want to stay at home as long as they can, and if not their home, their community. We don't offer that. That's their provincial responsibility. But it's a national need, and the federal government is giving the provinces money to do that. Should they be doing that? And, and that's where we have to come have a discussion about the provinces. They're not meeting their basic primary needs. They're not meeting meeting the need to primary care. They're not meeting the formal needs that seniors meet. Uh, you know, the attention's been half of the universities in, in Ontario are in deficit. Uh, actually, actually, half of the universities in all Canada are in deficit. And then, of course, you get a piling on. Now you've got an extension of the tuition freeze for three years. Great gift to the students, but they'll have no classes to benefit from that. So the provinces aren't meeting their their needs either. And so we, we have this situation at both levels of government where, by historical standards, spending is very high, but the most rudimentary needs of their clientele are not being met. So I'm sorry, by to, sound, I'm sorry to sound partisan, but... Wouldn't it be the argument that part of the reason that the federal spending has gone the way it has over the last number of years is trying to push provinces to do the things they should be doing anyway? Yes, it is. And and that's where you get into this very messy discussion in Canada of the Constitution. Uh, I would love it if an entity like the Council of the Federation actually did something. All they do is get together. Well, I mean, let's face, I mean, they come together and they ask the federal government for more money, right? I mean, that's the agenda, regardless of what it says. Um, why don't the provinces get together and figure out how to deliver care of the seniors in a better fashion? Um, why don't they look at collectively what's happening in post-education? Uh, you know, post-secondary education is one of the most powerful things, not only for, in, I mean, it, it is the ultimate potential equalizer and the ability of people to have satisfaction, have a good life. It contributes 30% of all the research and development in Canada is done out of universities, and yet, collectively, we're putting them in a very difficult position. But we deal with it one province by one province. They don't deal with it collectively. I'm, I'm always kind of mystified if they don't find some companionship and some common cause. And I guess that's the way. But, you know, this is why you're in the political reading and not me. I thought the moment Canada changed was the 2021 Nova Scotia election. Because I finally saw something working the way it should work. Uh, back to the movie Network, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. The good people of Nova Scotia said in that election, 
There are 68,000 households in Nova Scotia at that time were not registered with a primary caregiver. That played out on the front page of every newspaper, every radio, every television show. The political parties adjusted the way you would want them to adjust. It was the leading element of all their political platforms. And I'm not partisan whatsoever, but I have to say the party that won had the most comprehensive response. And the first thing that government did when they came into power is they created walk-in practices in pharmacies, nurse practitioner led. Big smile on my face. Not only because that's the way to deal with it, but I thought, finally, it worked. Finally, the complacent Canadian public said, we're as mad as hell, we're not going to take it anymore. They gave an ultimatum to the government, and the government responded. Well, what's happened since? Not much. I don't hear this, I'm as mad as hell. And right. yet, we get survey after survey, $6 billion, whatever the number is going to be of people that don't have this primary care. We have wait times, that, you know, emergency rooms, never mind long wait times, they're closed. Um, why is there not more of a revolt about that? Why as a politician, particularly a provincial, would you not anticipate I cannot possibly get elected or re-elected unless I fix that problem? Because it's not being fixed, you have to sense that they don't feel that pressure. Right, right. So all the spending comes from officials or politicians who think they're doing something good generally um i mean in my experience they don't think they're wasting money they think the program they're bringing in is going to make an impact on something that they want to make an impact on so i want to take this back up to the theoretical level if you think about the major problems that we face as a country climate change no growth in productivity and therefore no growth and no real growth in the economy income inequality poverty food insecurity intergenerational unfairness. How does balancing the budget instead of spending help to solve any of these things? Well, because it cuts down to how much of this bill we're deferring into the hands of the young people. And, you know, I'm in a university, and after their master's degree, they're starting out at $30,000, $40,000 co-ops and then maybe stringing together a string of contracts. Remember, remember back in my day, all the federal and provincial jobs were indeterminate part, full-time jobs with benefits. That's not the case anymore. And, and those are the luckier ones. Uh, like, they're getting employed, but they're not earning in real terms that yeah. much. And then they have to take a phenomenal mortgage. And this is why we have young people to, to quite advanced ages still living with their parents. And we see the statistics, uh, the degree of dependence upon the parents for the downhill. And I come back to it. They are going to be overwhelmed with the needs to adapt even more than mitigate climate change. And I think we have to keep their financial slate clean or cleaner to be able to deal with that. It's not fair for our generation, the previous generations, to say we're handing this environmental mess, good luck with it. But we're also giving you a 40% debt to P ratio. And by the way, you're only going to get 86 cents on your revenue dollar to deal with your problems because you've got to solve our problems as well. You know, it, it, it reminded me of, well, the Canada Pension Plan. You'll remember very well the, the finding of the actuary general of the Canada Pension Plan came right on the heels of the failed attempt to income test on a family basis, the seniors' benefit. Um, the politicians, they ever needed a reminder that seniors <laughs> had a fair bit of political clout. They certainly got it. 
And so the, now you're getting the Canada Pension Plan is going to be bankrupt at, at contribution rates. And a decision was made to, quote unquote, save the Canada Pension Plan by literally tripling the rates. So in that time, in the late 1990s, the contribution rate federally, uh, employer-employee went to 9.9%. A young person could have bought the Canada Pension Plan at 5.5% on the market. But they had to pay 9.9% for the rest of their life. And in fact, it's higher than that right now. So almost half of what they contributed went to the underfunding of the people that came before them. Wasn't their fault. They paid what they were told to pay, but they weren't told to pay enough. So th that's kind of a microcosm of what we're doing in a larger basis. So you had a young person losing almost 10% of their pay. And half of what they were losing wasn't even for their own benefit. It was because of mistakes that were made in the past. And that's what we're doing writ large by handing them such a big debt bill to handle on top of all the other problems that they have to face in the future. So where, where do people in government then so decide what's now and what's the future? I mean, is climate change a them issue or is it an us issue? Um, are these investments in vehicle in battery plants, are they for me or for the future? Well, everything goes in waves, and unfortunately, the wave seems to be moving away from attention on climate change. It seemed to be very strong a year or two ago, and now you you see companies, ESG used to be on their front banner, and now they're diminishing that. You're seeing all kinds of financial institutions actually pulling out of the international. Uh, you're seeing states in the United States making it illegal for a bank not to lend to fossil fuel. Uh, I'm very, very fearful of that. And, you know, it, it's sort of like the debt turning a blind eye and just allowing to accumulate, although this one may be much more great. This might be the extinction of uh, the human race. No, who knows if it comes to that. But it's... Yeah, the debt's you know, just money. We can figure that out ultimately. Well, but, and mm. I think we've always had the sense the world doesn't end in a day. Although, as you, you look back in the last couple of years of British Columbia, like at any given moment, half the province is flooded and half is on fire, some, some at the same time, almost yeah. at a place. And you look through the Midwest and the force of the tornadoes and, and the, the extended drought in California, yeah, it does seem to be creeping up in real time and right here, but people don't want to pay or make a sacrifice to do that. So they always kind of punt it forward. But at some point, somebody... You know, I, I, I'm dabbling in your world, not my world, but I, I always did wonder back on the Canada Pension Plan, we know the seniors. <laughs> uh, uh, Paul Martin asked uh, his parliamentary secretary, David Walker, and myself to cross the country, and our job was basically to convince seniors that income testing in the OES wasn't a good idea. Uh, we, we actually had to buy body armor about halfway through that trip. Totally. Uh, that, 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 went, that went very badly. Um, so we, like the rest of the politicians... Well, a couple of guys who've worn suits all their lives going to talk to people who swing hammers about yeah. why you uh, can work past 65? Yeah, well, that that wasn't it, you know, but it, 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 it shows, and, and I always say this to everybody who works in government, uh, you can't do public policy sitting in your office because you don't know how people live. You have to go out there. I would be sitting in a room with a bunch of senior women and I would know some of them and I would know their family and income situation and vague terms. I know that they had very substantial family wealth and they would tell us that the OAS was their only source of income, that their husbands actually had them an allowance. And say, I'm coming from somebody 
I have I have no idea. Don't even ask me what's in my bank account. I have no idea. My wife looks after all the finances. Um, I always say to her, I always take some satisfaction that she didn't bury me for my money. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't have any. Uh, but but that that was a that was not a, something I could relate to, and and that made a big impact and it showed why I was wrong. But anyway, my point was, why didn't the young people revolt? They they didn't mount the play. You know, I, I and one of our attempts, uh, a bunch of us, including Paul Martin, went to the Canadian Association of Retired People, and I always think they owe us a big favor because before we tried to incontest the OAS, they had a couple hundred thousand members who signed up to get a discount on insurance. Their membership went to several million because of this attempt. So we have basically created that organization. They tried, to, they, they tried to get me to sign up for a member, but at the time I wasn't old enough. They since relaxed that rule. So I, I, I got to save my money that day. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to ask you to dip your toe even further into my waters with our last question, which is, so these many of the things you are proposing, you know would be unpopular ideas raise the GST is likely to be an unpopular idea, eliminate the luxury tax, eliminate the high-income surtaxes, significant cuts to government spending. You know what the people like me around the table are saying about these things and these ideas. Does your experience give you any guidance as to how to persuade Canadians to go along with these kinds of measures, to support these kinds of measures? Yeah. So, so first of all, we've just identified you are the problem. Just to get yeah. that on the record, and you, and you did acknowledge that. So maybe we can do something about that. Uh, <laughs> okay, so here, here I'll demonstrate both. Maybe I'm naive and also demonstrate why I've never been a politician and never would be. Is there not a place to tell people the truth? And if you tell people the truth, will they not accept somebody who's addressing the truth? I think that there is. If you... If you say, as a liberal government is right now, don't worry, be happy, there's no problem here, and you show these bogus projections that show by 2055 everything works well, well, and I can get into this based on three assumptions, none of them have any credibility. If you presented that with credible assumptions and show we got a big problem here at the moment and the problem's going to get worse and here's the consequences, and yes, it may have some difficult things, but it can be done. Uh, yeah, well, I, I guess I'll go full circle. Um, we did some very painful things in 1995. That government got reelected afterwards, but they paint—they were honest in painting the picture. You know, one of the funniest things was I got inundated one by a call one day that a delegation from the International Monetary Fund was coming to Canada and we're going to take control of the finances of Canada. So I called the International Monetary Fund and said, apparently you're coming to take control of a financial as the Assistant Deputy Minister of Fiscal Policy. I would have thought you'd kind of give me a heads up. And they said, we'll check into this and we'll get back to you. And they said, Don, the only thing we can find is the cultural group is coming to see the ballet in Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> and said if it's a big problem we can put out a press release and i said no i, I like this i like the story 
Uh, no, continue to come and, uh, you know, if you come in mm. to take the financial control, if you can catch a couple of ballet shows, all the better for it. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you know, you remember the Wall Street Journal and honorary member of the third country. You remember that we were called the Northern Peso and stuff. You know, those were exaggerations, and I don't say you want to go there, but there was an honesty behind that. And I, I come back, I, this, I don't get the health thing. So, you know, I, I come back, the Winter Olympics, CBC runs for months a poll. What is the statement that best defines Canadianism? The Canadian public health care system. Let's break it down word by word. It's not Canadian. It's got 13 different districts and 14 if you count defense. Public is 30% private. Next to the United States, that's one of the highest. The out-of-pocket exp- expenses in Canada are phenomenal, which is why we're talking about family. It's health care. It looks after people after something goes wrong. It does almost nothing to promote it. If we go back to the speeches of Tommy Douglas, he had the two going side by side. We never did the second part of it. We just forgot about it. And it calls it a system. It's not a system. It's a system of isolated. How can Canadians believe they're defined by something that is not true? And why doesn't tell somebody it's not true? It's because we nurture this belief we're not American. Well, first of all, if you've got a decent job in the United States, you've actually got a pretty good deal. You'll get looked after with high state technology and highly skilled people right away, and you don't have to worry about the bill. It's the 40 million people without insurance. It's not Well, that come on. It. You're going to have a copay. Uh, there's some copays, but they're, you know, again, depending on the employer, they're, they're not that bad. So not all their aspects are their bad, but we have some very bad systems. And why don't we compare ourselves to some of the European countries? will actually spend less of their GDP. You look at senior care in Denmark. There's a reason why seniors have the highest life satisfaction. If you can't get out of your bathtub in Denmark, you call your community association. Within 24 hours, somebody's bolted a bar. If you can't make your meals, somebody's prepared your meals. You can do all of that stuff for $100 a day. That's way less than the care of nursing care. But why aren't we honest and put that out to people? So when somebody says we're going to have this aging, then you have Doug Ford or whoever it is, well, we'll build 30,000 more long-term care beds. Well, nobody's asking for long-term care beds. Nobody wants them. Why is that the policy direction? Why don't we step back and have a conversation? You know, the aging of the population is the most predictable public policies there's ever been. From the first baby boomers born, we knew this day was coming. How could we not know it? And it's the one we've done the least amount to prepare for. And it's the one we have no honest conversation. First of all, everybody flunks great math. The number of long-term care beds is only going to replace the number of ones that are coming out of commission. The famous institution and Bob Cajun had four people in a room separated by sheets and the COVID hit them so hard. Those are coming out of commission. All these numbers are talking about replacing them. We're not even meeting this need. But why don't we have a national dialogue? We got this big problem bad on us we haven't prepared for it but now we need to prepare for it and it needs to go in a different direction but we don't have that and so we just muddle on um why do you think you can get away with removing one source of the carbon tax for one segment of the population what is the mindset that thinks that that would be a good thing to do and thinks you're going to get away with it. How sad is that? Fortunately, that went badly. I'm actually glad that went badly. (laughs) (laughs) Don, that was a world-class rant and exactly what I wanted. So to all of the politicians out there, provincial premiers, Pierre Polyev, Justin Trudeau, Jugmeet Singh, we need some national conversations 
and Don Drummond needs to be part of them. So thank uh, in, you, Don. In between my pickleball games, keep, in uh, keep, pickleball. keep, keep that in mind, please. Thank you. <laughs> in, manage his pickleball schedule. I'm sure with all the additional public servants, you can manage around Don's pickleball schedule. There we go. There we go. Thanks, Don, for doing this very much. Oh, you're welcome. A lot of fun. Yeah. Bye. Thank you to TELUS, our presenting sponsor, and to CN Rail, our sponsor for this show. And thank you to all of you Hurley Burleyites who watched or listened. Uh, it's always great to hear the wisdom of Don Drummond. I never worked with a smarter person in my life. Take care of yourselves till next week. Don, you're the best. Bye.